Hey, Film Spotting listeners, Adam here. Very pleased to announce that this episode and several upcoming episodes of Film Spotting is sponsored by MUBI, a curated online cinema that brings its members a handpicked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, MUBI's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for just $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try MUBI free for a month. Just go to MUBI.com. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash film spotting to redeem now. And some titles currently playing you can check out. There's a Claire Denis double bill of 35 Shots of Rum and Trouble Every Day, a Joe Swanberg double bill of The Zone and Silver Bullets, and Nuri Bilga Jalan got some love on the last episode, may just get some love on this episode. His film Three Monkeys is available as is former Golden Brick winner Dogtooth. Again, try Mubi free for a month by going to Mubi dot com slash film spotting. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. Hello, Adam. I'm Josh Larson. Who are you? A, I'm an award-winning scrimshander. B, I'm a moderately influential warlord. Hmm. C, I write personality quizzes for magazines. I'm going to go with a D, Adam. You're just a moderately influential film critic. Well, I'm also a scrimshander, just not award-winning, but I love the fact that you're throwing moderately in there. I'll take it. <laughs> Rosamund Pike there in David Fincher's Gone Girl, one of the most acclaimed films of 2014. But will it come up on this week's show as we conclude our countdown of the top 10 films of the year? Returning for this week's episode, the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips and Scott Tobias from The Dissolve. Talk about some moderately influential film critics. It's all ahead on Film Spotting. The ghosts of Pleasure Town still haunt the barren lands that once bared its name. Set more than a century ago on the open plains of Oklahoma, this utopian settlement was built on the hopes and dreams of the human spirit that met the wrath of its darker side. Pleasure Town had its share of heroes. Mama named me Matilda. Means strength in battle. She must have seen it in me as a baby, and I had never lost that spirit. Every time I thought there was no way I could take another goddamn breath, I'd remind myself that I was born a warrior. But it had its villains, too. I don't mean no harm, except for all those people who deserved it. Now that I'm judge, jury, and of course, executioner, Pleasure Town will be able to rest easy tonight. Now I'm gonna untie you. But don't try running or yelling. Won't do you much good. In fact, it just make it more fun for me. Catch the complete first season of WBEZ's critically acclaimed serial drama at wbezorg town. You're listening to Film Spotting, and back with us. They are still alive. They've survived the week here at the studio. Scott Tobias from The Dissolve and from the Chicago Tribune, Michael Phillips. Guys, hanging in there. Glad to see you again. Good morning. How are you guys? (laughs) Thanks for letting me out of my cage. Open the windows. Let some light in here. (laughs) Well, we are into part two of our top 10 movies of 2014 countdown. So we're going to get to our five through one picks here on the show. But we're going to start with one of our special guest voicemailers and her pick for the number one movie of the year. 
Hey, Film Spotting listeners. It's Kate Urbland from various and sundry sites on the web, including uh, Film School Rejects, Dissolve, uh, Cosmopolitan, Vanity Fair, and Rolling Stone. I'm calling to uh, actually formally announce my, my number one pick for the year, which I have now decided uh, is Ava DuVernay's Selma, which is uh, the rare film that I would deem a masterpiece, a modern masterpiece. It's uh, important. It's beautifully filmed. The acting is incredible. And I think it's a sort of movie that everyone should see. And I hope that everyone gets a chance to see it and soon. It comes out at the end of the month. And uh, that's my number one pick for the year. And I'm pretty excited about it. I hope you guys like it. Our thanks to Kate. Selma, certainly a movie getting a fair amount of attention and good buzz this time of year as it's set to come out here around Christmas time, I believe, is the right. release well, date. Right. Well, we're seeing. Well, well we're, we're seeing, seeing, unfortunately. Absolutely. We haven't caught up with it here. I think there was maybe one critic screening that there we weren't able to make two, it to. And yeah, yeah, just missed those. And so. not a screener available. So Selma, one of those movies, haven't been able to see yet and can't corroborate what Kate has to say about the movie. You guys have seen it, though, Scott and Michael. Are you guys on board with Selma? Oh, it just, it's just on the cusp of my list. I really, really like it. It's, it's very Lincoln-like in, in the way it uh, treats uh, you know, an iconic figure in a very human way and deals with kind of a lot of the politics and sort of horse trading that is necessary to get an agenda across. Hmm. So it's, I, it's a formidable piece of work. I really like it. Yeah, same. It's also really astutely focused in that it's not trying to take on too much of Martin Luther King's life or too much of the civil rights movement. or all. It is really a precise procedural on how you're going to affect change kind of with this one march and and all the steps it takes leading up to that to make it work and it's great politicking selma not making any of our top five lists of the year let's find out what movies did michael we'll start with you your number five film of 2014 uh, my number five was not about Martin Luther King. It was uh, about Legos, uh, the Lego movie, which I think may be my favorite American comedy of the year. And it's 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 simply after having suffered through an awful lot of mediocre animation of all types uh, uh, from various studios. And so often these movies just kind of mistake loud for funny or fast for funny. This is a movie that really was funny and happened to be fast and really fleet-footed and a really a really kind of bizarre mixture of celebrating and maligning the whole issue of living in a product placement world and and uh, and and a in a deeply heavily kind of corporately controlled universe that that you have to kind of live within the boundaries of it and yet somehow find your way to break out of and that's and it's all in this all it's all in this cockamamie story i just i really this film i thought was uh uh truly just one of the best american comedies of the year and um not that it matters but it's going to win the oscar too so, is it i think maybe yeah not just for best animated feature no 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 <laughs> oh, best, best just best for animated. best animated feature you're not going out best on legos that, certainly best lego movie yeah <laughs> yeah though i will say and i don't know what's your experience you you have smaller children you saw this with the smaller children i did um they they're not getting the message about the, you know the, the I think I think the my, sinister the, part. No, the fact that they, they they love the song everything is awesome and they really think it's an awesome song. Where's my pants? Is a hilarious oh, catchphrase. They're not picking up on the irony all the time. They do not pick up on the irony. They're gonna have to. <laughs> they're gonna have to watch that. it. They're gonna have to come come later. But those guys between this movie and and Twenty Two Jump, Jump Street, you know, there's there's kind of a Tashlin esque quality to those those two, an ability to mix you know a lot of different forms. You know, they're really plugged in. Uh, to, to pop culture in a, in a very advanced way. Um, they're great entertainers. I, I, I really, uh, mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. like those guys. Ah, here it is. Instructions to fit in have everybody like you and always be happy. 
Step one, breathe. Okay, got that one down. Step two, greet the day's smile and say, Good morning, city! Step three, exercise. Your number five, Scott. Uh, mine is not quite as hilarious as uh, the Lego movie. Uh, this would be Stray Dogs wow. by Sai Ming Liang. Sai is a, a Taiwanese filmmaker who uh, is one of my favorite filmmakers in the world. He did uh, What Time Is It There is probably his most well-known film. He did other movies like The River and The Hole. And, uh, you know, there are all these sort of portraits of... Yeah, urban alienation, but also done with a certain amount of humor, a lot of deadpan. Uh, yeah, they have sort of a deadpan, almost a Buster Keaton-like quality to them. But this film, which he says is going to be his last film, really gets at, in a very direct way, a theme that has sort of been under, burbling under the surface of everything he's done, which is poverty. You know, which is what it is like to live hand-to-mouth, to not have a home to be in the, in, in the city with your family and trying to just kind of get by. And it is by his standards, you know, very emotional by other standards, <laughs> by other people's standards, probably not so much, but as a, as a longtime fan of his work, this is just a great summary, great sort of capping point to his really wonderful career. A movie and a filmmaker we really need to know more about, Josh. I For think sure. one of those marathon candidates, hopefully in 2015. Yeah, we put need it to on consider. the list. My number five is the Grand Budapest Hotel, which uh, hasn't come up yet. And it's kind of surprising because it's been on a lot of top ten lists, and that's been encouraging to see yeah, for me. It'll, it'll come up. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Good. <laughs> okay. I mean, it, you know, this is Anderson's eighth feature, and I might rank some of his pictures higher than Grand Budapest Hotel, but I feel like it's helped us reach a point where Wes Anderson is finally accepted as one of our contemporary master filmmakers. Now, some of us have long thought that, but the criticism this time around seems to have shifted away from he's an overstylized fraud to I just don't connect with what he does. And there's a crucial difference there. You know, there's a recognition of of something important being done. Now, that being said, those people who have listed it as their film of the year, and I've heard from a few, maybe we will hear from a few of you later, I can completely connect with the reasons they're giving for naming Grand Budapest as one of his best. In some ways, it's probably his largest in scale. Maybe the Life Aquatic is also this big. It's definitely his most densely complicated in visual scope with its use of models and stuff motion and the various aspect ratios that he's employing for the different time periods here. It has this intricate multi-layer narrative. That's by far, I think, his most ambitious in terms of narrative. And then this comically revelatory performance, at least it was for me, from Ray Fiennes as the hotel concierge in a fictional 1930s Eastern Europe. You've nothing to fear. You're always anxious before you travel. I admit you appear to be suffering a more acute attack on this occasion, but Truly and honestly. Oh, dear God, what have you done to your fingernails? I beg your pardon. This diabolical varnish, the colour is completely wrong. Oh, really? Don't you like it? It's not that I don't like it. I, I am physically repulsed. You asked about themes, Adam, and I would say if there was a theme, maybe not to my list overall, but to a number of the films that I saw this year for me. Delicious pastries? <laughs> that. <laughs> and it does tie to that. Nostalgia. Um, and maybe what tastes remind us of. I think of only lovers left alive in this category. I also think of Captain America, Winter Soldier, Mood Indigo, the Michelle Gondry film as well. They all have this flavor of nostalgia. And when I reviewed Grand Budapest Hotel initially, I called it a comedy about the tragedy of nostalgia. There's this nostalgia for these aspect ratios that are no longer used, for this Europe 
that's no longer found. And Grand Budapest, it indulges in these sort of memories, and then it seals them in this this really precious snow globe of a movie, preserves them there for us to treasure, well, most of us, Adam. Most of you. Sorry. <laughs> Indeed. Well, my number five movie of the year, and I should preface it a little bit, I don't know if you guys do try to come up with any overriding concepts to help frame these lists at all. I should know this by now. You guys have been coming on since 2008. But I do, as I'm really trying to whittle down and make these tough decisions, I think about the whole list, but especially the top five in terms of what are kind of the time capsule movies? What are the movies I think you need to put away as representative of the best of 2014? Essential viewing now, essential viewing in years to come. I do think of movies, I'm sorry, Josh, that are ambitious and achievements like Interstellar. And I also think of my most exciting cinematic experiences I had just sitting in the theater kind of the energy coming off the screen that I felt watching those movies. And I look at these top five, there's a fair amount of experimenting in terms of tones and form and playing with genres as well. So that brings me to my number five and maybe the only thing less shocking than a Wes Anderson movie making Josh's list, though I am surprised it's down that low, frankly, Josh, is a Paul Thomas Anderson film making (laughs) my top five. Inherent Vice is my number five film of the year, and we devoted a solid 35 minutes to this movie last week on the show. Josh, I said really everything I wanted to say about it, at least in terms of the first viewing of the film, or one and a half viewings I've had of Inherent Vice. So I'm going to let Matt Zoller Seitz do a little bit of the work for me. He says, Vice impresses by seeming uninterested in impressing us. Anderson shoots moments as plainly as possible, staging whole scenes in unobtrusive long takes or tight close-ups, letting faces, voices, and subtle lighting touches do work that 15 years ago he might have tried to accomplish with a virtuoso tracking shot that ended with the camera tilting or whirling or diving into a swimming pool. There's a long, teasing, frankly sexual scene that plays out for five or six minutes without a cut. There are entire scenes where one character walks into a room and starts talking to another character, and the rest of the scene plays out alternating shots of the actors' faces, which seem to eschew makeup and draw attention to actors' freckles and moles and other blemishes, and in cinematographer Robert Ellswit's creamy 70s-style lighting. There's so much going on in those shots that you might not mind spending another 10 minutes with those people, or an hour, or going for another drive with that dentist I mentioned earlier, whatever his name is, and we talked about (laughs) that dentist. I love Martin Short. Just hilariously funny as Dr. Bladnoid, I believe, is his his great name in that movie. I think about Inherent Vice, really the humor of it. Another scene I mentioned, that yell of Joaquin Phoenix when he looks at the picture of the baby, my funniest moment of the year in movies. All of Martin's short scenes, but Joaquin Phoenix as well in that opening sequence with Shasta, his ex-girlfriend who comes in and gets the plot going. There's a sequence where he's clearly out of it, maybe been drinking as well as smoking a little something, and he says the line, I think I heard of that happening once or twice. And I had to rewind it watching a screener three times to get what he said. It's one of those mumbly kind of moments where, you know, Joaquin Phoenix is just willing to take some of those risks as an actor and to say one or two lines you can't really completely get. It it feels right for that character in that moment to be that out of it that he can barely spit out that line. And that character that Joaquin Phoenix plays, he's a man out of time who I think would be the same in any time, not just 1970. And that way he's very similar, I think, to... Elliot Gold's Marlowe in Altman's The Long Goodbye. I do think, like Paul Thomas Anderson's other films, you see here in Inherent Vice him evoking a certain time and place very specifically, yet telling this this really broader story that feels a lot bigger than it is. I think by the time Paul Thomas Anderson is done, you can throw out the history books. The whole American story will be told just in his filmography. <laughs> it's there. It's all captured in his films. Yeah, you mentioned the cinematography. The uh, to see what Elswood did with L.A. in this film for Anderson, uh, and compared to what how Elswood shot Nightcrawler in a completely different palette, completely different mood. You get you get both halves of L.A. This sort of hazy, 
sunny, beachy mirage mm-hmm. of, a, of, a, of a dreamland. It's a little, a little. It's kind of curdling underneath, right? Yeah. And and Nightcrawler's just got a whole other. He's one of the best visual artists we have in America today. This, this Without a doubt, absolutely. Uh, you know, Inherent Vice did not make my list, but it just it has just a big fat asterisk by it because it's just. I feel like once I make my way through. Just the thicket of plotting uh, that the film throws up, and really see what the film is is really getting at, which is the world behind all of that plotting. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that I think it w- it's going to resonate so much more for me than it did on first viewing, and that ultimately is much of what these types of films do, which is you know these kinds of detective films or, or procedural films, is that you're you're following the story, and the, the plot is the plot, and it can be really complicated. But it really is just about revealing the background and, and it getting it's into It's a total that. dodge, right? I mean, I mean, the fact, yeah. I mean, like Pynchon didn't care about his plot. He was more interested in, in everything other than the plot, this complicated plot. He felt like, it almost felt like the least interesting part of the book and the movie. You know? Well, and to get back to the idea of humor, the plot is a joke. I mean, and, and yeah. as it gets more complicated, and, and yet every once in a while, part of the joke also is that a connection bubbles up maybe 45, 50 minutes in, and you think, oh, this is supposed to mean something. It really doesn't. So you can almost set aside the entire plot immediately from the I'm going to do that, but I'm not, I can't, I I wasn't able to do that entirely on the first view. I know, because your your instinct is to grab a hold of the threads. And and I think it is fascinating to have everybody just simply own up. So many people are owning up saying, well, look, one one time is not enough for me. I have to see it again just to even kind of figure out what I thought of it or how I'm responding to it. And that's how kind of I feel about the challenge of, I'm eager to write about this. Yeah. Now, the one thing I'm very glad glad about though is that as funny as that trailer was when we first saw the inherent vice trailer come out it's very different in tone from the film itself the film was a much more bittersweet and essentially serious experience i think you know and yet it's a comedy yeah. you know what i mean it's, yeah. but it's not this sort of frantic antic no, it's not mainstream the mainstream thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. No, and I, I, I said that I'd seen it one and a half times, and really that's because before we reviewed it, I was able to fit in about another 45 minutes or an hour of it. And I'm with you, Michael, in the sense that I really liked it the first viewing, but just watching that hour again of the film made me realize, no, I think this is kind of a masterpiece, actually. I love this movie. And Scott, I will say, when you get to watch it again, I think you'll see that even though it doesn't add up to anything, this is one of the things we talked about a little bit last week, Josh, sequence to sequence, moment to moment, as he's going on this journey and following these leads, those do make sense. It they progresses. Do add up. It progresses yeah. in a way that there's a, a real strong connective tissue there. What does it all mean? Well, really nothing. And that's kind of the point. So mm-hmm. number four, Michael Phillips. My number four is Whiplash, which I think you mentioned Damien Chazelle's uh, yeah, uh, my number fe- eight. feverish, feverish melodrama. This is the most kind of debated thing around the office. A lot of people I've talked to who I work with uh, hated it. Mm-hmm. And and felt uh, like the same way that um, I think Glenn Kenny did uh, when he wrote about it briefly on his blog, basically resisted all of it and said it's not that for Glenn Kenny wrote something along the lines of it's not that it gets the world of jazz wrong it gets life on earth wrong so <laughs> I e I take, a bold statement I take that to mean well it's just simply you cannot you know you, many people find none of it sort of moment to moment plausible or quote, realistic or something like that, I, I say, uh, fine, it's not. <laughs> and this film is about as it does for jazz what you know Black Swan did for ballet, yeah. another film yeah. I really like. Yeah. And I just don't... It's a I heightened world, there's no yeah, doubt about and, it. And yet, and yet, well, the second time I saw this film, which held up very well a second time, I find that this <laughs> the central dilemma that the Miles Teller character is facing, which is he's enthralled to his... 
this fearsome instructor played by J.K. Simmons, he doesn't really know even how much to kind of uh, um, willingly go along with this destructive, abusive character. But he's at that point in his life, first year of college, first time away from this sort of um, you know, sweet but uh, diffident uh, single father, played by Paul Reiser. It's 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 a time in your life when a lot of people are looking for quote father figures and of a new type. And uh, I don't know. I found I found a lot of the relationships in even in this heightened sort of melodramatic state. I did find them completely, completely kind of gripping. And I think people who don't like the film feel in a way kind of traumatized by it because it's yeah. such a wild series of mood swings. And yet I think Chazelle, who came off a great movie, a great indie called Guy and Madeline on Apartment. Uh, is it called Guy and yeah. Madeline on yeah. Apartments? Yeah. I think you had it on a top 10. Top 10. 10 and I, I've seen, you know, that's, it's a whole different level of uh, breadth and ambition and, you know, uh, uh, wonderful. And this is this is a much tighter, more distilled, more economical, essentially a two-hander for two really good performances. Love them both. Yeah. And, and that's all you can say about a filmmaker. It's, hey, great. You, guy, you know, this guy made two damn good movies in a row. What's your name? Andrew Naiman, sir. What year are you? I'm a first year. You know who I am? Yes, sir. So you know I'm looking for players? Yes, sir. Then why did you stop playing? Did I ask you to start playing again? Uh, sorry, I asked I why you stopped playing, and your version of an answer was to turn into a wind-up monkey. Sorry, I thought... Show me your rudiments. Yes, sir. I will acknowledge maybe one of the things that gets wrong about jazz, and I say this having a best friend since first grade who's a great jazz drummer, having spent a fair amount of time with jazz musicians. I don't know any young musician today who reveres Buddy Rich the way this character does. <laughs> Nobody sits around talking about wanting to be the next Buddy Rich. It just it just doesn't happen, at least in my jazz circles. You become, you know, obsessed with a certain person, and then uh, he's a perfectly fine drummer, Buddy Rich, right? Yeah, there's a technical mastery there for sure. But there's, like, I just, you know, I felt like, I feel like Whiplash has been one of the most curiously misinterpreted films yes, of yes. the year. I, I mean, I, I've heard it as a defense or apology for bullying, which it definitely isn't. Wow. Uh, well, I I've think it does pull it... the rug out on audiences, and maybe that's what they're responding to. Now, I thought that was good, the way it seems to be building to this triumphant ending, this feel-good ending, and then sort of turns it on its yeah. head. But but maybe some audiences are... But they don't feel like it turns it on its head. That's Because I've heard it framed as like an inspirational sports exactly. movie. Exactly. Yeah. It isn't it that is either. Not, no. It's like It's psychotic. You know? The last 20 minutes it are basically totally psychotic. psychotic. Yeah. 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 And, I, and, I, and I honestly spent the last 20 minutes just sweating like i was just in my, in my seat at the edge of my seat sweating well i was sweating was so and tapping intense. my foot so intense so well I, I did love this i did love the fact that arnold schwarzenegger took to twitter and said you know i i how much he admired the film and loved it and you do think <laughs> if there's one guy in the planet who probably misinterpreted the jk yeah. simmons character as an honorable upright fairly demanding taskmaster it's schwarzenegger <laughs> that was funny. me that was me once <laughs> He's producing the Hollywood remake right now, starring himself. <laughs> All right, Scott, your number four. My number four is Jim Jarmusch 
wishes only lovers left alive, which uh, I, I was surprised that Josh predicted may not appear on anyone's list. Come on. This is a great movie. Uh, I saw it a while ago. You're so the second person the I've seen who had it on their list. So uh, congratulations. But, uh, you know, uh, well, I think, uh, I think you'll, you'll find that, is, that it is very, very high on the Dissolves uh, good, uh, good. collective list as well. And I, I think it's his best film since Dead Man, and that was it's been a while since he made that one. The thing that I find so interesting about it, and this is just him jarmushifying the genre as he did with Ghost Dog, is that what interests him about vampires are not all not the usual, you know, myths and lore and romance. Even even though the film is romantic, it's just this the idea that these people have been around for a long time, <laughs> that they've mm-hmm. seen so much of what humanity's had had to offer. They they themselves have developed. You know, quirks and habits and obsessions, as as you would to pass all of that time. And there's kind of a wisdom to the film and a, a humor to the film, and uh, you know, an understanding of really the full scope of, you know, or like a large scope of human history that gives the film, uh, you know, a richness. And in addition to it being just hilarious, it's a really funny film, and it's got a perfect ending. I just think it's, I think it's dynamite. That yeah. ending, yeah, I do love that. It's, it's. Don't want to give it away, but it's, it's sort of a shrug and then a dramatic act at yeah, once, you know, in the same really gesture. Good. Really good. Yeah, great film. My number four is, I think it's a great film. Adam, The Rover. This was probably one of our biggest splits this year. Yeah. Uh, A movie that, you know, it didn't get as much attention as we might have expected, given the praise that was lavished on director David Michaud's debut, Animal Kingdom. So I did revisit it recently, wanted to do my due diligence and see if maybe I was just in a generous mood that day when I saw The Rover. And sorry to report that it's a really strong dose. This is my macho movie, by the way. Really strong dose of post-apocalyptic fatalism. And uh, Guy Pierce here is this mysterious loner whose car is stolen by a pack of rogues. He then takes hostage one of them who's been left behind, played by Robert Pattinson, and then goes on this maniacal pursuit of his car. He's traveling through a bunch of these creepily decrepit outback ghost towns. I stand by it still as this primal screen over the implosion of domesticity. I think that's why the final reveal worked so well for me, not because it deserved all the buildup that it had been getting, but because it was this little joke on the central theme that the movie was going after. But I also want to heap even more praise on an element that I was mildly in favor of the first time, and that's Robert Pattinson's performance as this dim-witted hostage. Because I believe in God, and I know Henry believes in God, doesn't and there's no harm Henry wants to see me come to. And I believe in that. You look at the harm you've come to, and where's Henry? He's waiting for me. He's not waiting for you. Yes, he is. No, he's not. I'll tell you what God's given you. He's put a bullet in you. He's abandoned you out here to me. The ticks are there, and perhaps that's why I was cautiously praising, because I'm usually suspicious of these sort of things. But I think they're authentic to this character and to this story. These are the worryings of a brain that isn't able to process things as quickly as the other people around him. And that's crucially problematic when what's around him is all of these life or death situations. He's got to think quickly to survive, and he can't think as quickly as the guy who's got the gun pulled out in his face. He's also the one innocent in this world that's otherwise gone completely off the edge. So he's sort of your stakes, Adam. That character, he's the stakes of the film. The rover also has a strong contender for my shot of the year. It came from Edith, the one I went with, but 
there is one moment here that's just fantastic. I won't give it away. I'll just say that when Guy Pierce, this is early on, is sitting at a bar, keep a close eye on the window over his shoulder. And I'll have to reference the immigrant here, Scott, because this is <laughs> this is sort of my kind of showy. This is undeniably a showy shot, but it's quick. It's witty and it's equally intricate, I'd say, as the immigrants final shot, which received a lot of praise, but mm-hmm. it's not belabored at all, which is sort of the feeling I got from that one. So mm-hmm. Rover stuck around for me this year. Robert Pattinson made my top five best actors the year Cosmopolis came yeah, out. Yeah, you had come around on him. And this year, my single worst performance of the year, without a doubt. I think the only stakes were really just trying to see how long it would take him to get through each of his lines of dialogue. You're kind of Too a, many takes. You, you seem to be kind of a moody fellow. I, don't mm. know about, about Robert. I know. I yeah. just go yeah. back Either and way. forth. But I, this is the question, the whole thing about the Twilight franchise, because people always people have tended to treat Pattinson as on the same skill level as you know Kirsten Stewart, and worse, you know, right on the Taylor Lautner level. And I, I think Pattinson and Stewart are certainly capable of very good work, depending on the material. I haven't seen The Rover. I missed it. Okay. I got to see this. Check film. it out. So, right. Can you show it now? Scott, are you going to break Let's the put it tie on. here? I, I haven't seen it. Okay. I have not seen it. I have, I have Alas. the, the Blu-ray, I was, the Blu-ray come on. sitting on my desk. I was waiting for support from I know, one of you I know. I just, it has, because it did get it kind uh, of was forgotten, mixed right? reviews. Yeah, uh, yeah. But 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 my, my colleague, Keith, Keith Phipps, was a big supporter of it. And there you it's go. It's definitely on the, my stack of things to see. It moves to the top of the stack. I'll, I'll be sure to see it <laughs> All uh, right. very soon. Well, my number four is the choice you can certainly attack. One of the choices you can attack on my list, Josh. And you know that cliche about an actor or actors being so good, you could just watch them read the phone book? Well, my number four choice puts that to the test in the form of watching Tom Hardy talk on his car Bluetooth for 90 minutes. <laughs> and Hardy does not disappoint. That's and a good the movie film, too. It's does a good not film. disappoint. It's the movie film. is lock. And really, this is my performance of the year from Tom Hardy, stuck in that front seat of the car. And the way he doesn't let himself get too angry, really, because it just is inefficient. And he's a guy who's all about maximizing all of his energy and his time trying to get things done. And watching him, we talked about this during our review, roll up his sleeves as that car ride goes on, as he's really trying to get down and do this work, but stuck in that seat, you half expect that by the end of the car ride, he's not going to have any sleeves at all. It'll just be like a muscle shirt that he's wearing because he's really this caged animal that's kind of biding his time. And, you know, former colleague of yours here in Chicago as a newspaper guy, Jonathan Rosenbaum, Michael, said of this movie, top five film of the year for him said it feels like a classic heroic western deserves to be recognized as more than just a stunt or tour de force i'm with him completely obviously there is a sense of it being a little bit of an experiment when you're stuck in one location with one character one actor for that whole 90 minutes whatever you want to try to reduce it to the reality is dramatically it isn't for me at all reliant on that gimmick to sustain it over the course of that running time you talk about stakes the stakes here are just so high over the course of this one trip he stands to lose his family his job really everything about his identity he stands to lose just over that car trip and and that for me really just kept me i hate to use the cliche but on the edge of my seat watching this film my favorite line in the movie is when he's talking to his assistant back at the back at the office and he he's speaking of slow the guy really isn't up to speed the way that tom hardy is and he says to him have you got a pen and he says i've got a pencil He says, we'll get a pen. You know, this is a guy who just recognizes there are certain tools to do a job, and a pencil is not going to get it done, and this guy needs to understand that. I love those little touches like that from the uh, writer and director, Stephen Knight. And I do want to get back real quick to the theme I raised at the start of part one of the show when we were talking about masculinity and men in crisis. Certainly, you could talk about this film within that context. And maybe it's true that I relate to this movie a little bit more than some might or some women might, because... 
I'm a man and a husband and a father and someone with a career that does take a lot of my focus away from being a husband and a father. But I also bristle at that a little bit when these movies maybe get reduced to just that type of macho film, because I think what this movie is really concerned with ultimately at its core is free will and identity and accepting responsibility for your actions. And those concepts aren't just for men, certainly. I think anyone watching this film can relate to those ideas. Eddie, it's your dad. Is, uh, is your mother there? Uh, no, she's not back from the shops yet. Um, she's getting that German beer that you like for the match. Okay, uh, listen, I won't be back for that. What? Uh, something's come up. I can't get out of it. I'm wearing the shirt. Uh, Mum's getting sausages. <laughs> oh, yeah, and guess what? She's wearing the shirt as well. Oh, Dad, it's so embarrassing. Um, yeah, what did you say about coming home? I won't be back for the match. I'll, uh, I'll have to listen to it on the radio. Dad, you said you'd be back. It's rubbish on the radio. Mum's doing sausages and all. Is your brother there? Yeah, do you want a word? No, uh, just tell... You just tell your mother to call me when she gets back. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, sure. I love you. What? Uh, it's okay. Do you know what? Just, uh, just get her to call me when she gets back. Yeah. Thank you. Sure, all right. Bye. Bye, Dad. How come you pull out the big name critics only for the films that I didn't like? I, I'm noticing mm. a pattern here in your top ten list. Maybe, maybe Strategy. subconsciously. <laughs> I do love that uh, the LA Film Critics Association gave Hardy Best Actor. I believe. Well done. And, I didn't and, see that. You know, and and it, to me, it's just as good as Michael Keaton is in Birdman, and I think he'll win the Oscar. In, in the end, it's a completely comfortable, narrow set of demands that that film is asking of Keaton. I, I mean, Tom Hardy's got to keep this top spinning for 90 minutes plausibly. And it's a really, he's a dazzling technical actor. He is. With huge emotional resources behind him. And I mean, to even to compare it in the same sentence with something like the drop, the Dennis Lehane thing, which is just pure artifice. And, oh, you, it you is. Know, it, yeah, wow. yeah. That, I mean, Whoa, whoa, yeah. Yeah, I love the drop. Really? <laughs> oh, yeah. really? No, yeah. I'm with Michael on this one. Yeah, yeah. I, like the, I mean, it didn't make my list, but I, I thought I would would love to have movie many more movies like it. It was a treat, but Dirt. we're off, off the track. But it, but it sounds like you think one of the reasons it succeeded for you was Tom Hardy. Uh, sure, and yeah. I mean, and he's an actor with, with tremendous range. Uh, he, you never really know what to expect from him from film to film. I mean, you know, this his performance in Bronson is certainly not anything like his performance in Locke, which is nothing like his performance in, you know, The Dark Knight Rises. He's just, he gives you all sorts of different looks. Yeah, yeah, he's all over the place. He's well, great. speaking of Michael Keaton, let's hear from another one of our special guest voicemailers with her pick for the best film of the year. My name is Joanna Robinson with VanityFair.com. My number one film of 2014 is Birdman. My choice has nothing to do with the flashy camera work or the jazzy drum score. More it has to do with the performances from Michael Keaton, Edward Norton, Emma Stone, Zach Galifianakis, and it's amazing. You can get this far down the cast list without even mentioning Naomi Watts. That's how amazing this ensemble is. It's a love letter to the theater and a poison pen letter to fame. It's emotional and energetic and riveting and unforgettable. So that's why I picked Birdman. Joanna there with her pick for Birdman, a movie that I feel comfortable in saying is not going to make our top five films of the year here. Josh, the only one at the table that liked the movie. I'm the, the only movie. one who kind of liked it, yeah. Well, yeah. I, mean, I liked it enough to recommend it, but okay. I, I, to me it's like the musical Phantom of the Opera, which I always thought was a great show if you didn't have to listen to it. I think <laughs> Birdman is a great movie if you don't have to listen to it either because it's just plain fun to watch, but I don't think it's got a thought in its head. You know? Well, and Scott, with a 
a famous or infamous takedown of this movie that we'll link to in the show notes if you haven't read Scott's review of Birdman. The one thing Joanne and I do agree on is the amazing cast for the most part, including Edward Norton, my favorite supporting actor turn of the year in Birdman. So it does have that going for it. Thank you, Joanna. We'll hear from a few more voicemailers as we get through our picks. That does bring us to our number three movie of the year. I've already yacked about it because uh, Scott uh, already jumping on this, but Nuri Bilge Jalan's Winter Sleep, the Turkish auteur, all the, you can say all these words in a row and people just start changing the dial because it just doesn't sound like how, it's how a long movie is that for movie, them. It's this, will, this will rope them in. It's 196 minutes long, which is half the length of the battle scene in The Hobbit. And uh, <laughs> uh, it's, I mean, Jalan's been one of my favorite international filmmakers for a long time since. The film Climates introduced me to him, and that it's probably still my favorite film of his. And this is this is, you know, this is as Scott said, it's 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 beautiful, but it's also got a real focus and an interest in just exploring the 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 the, the, the egotistical mind of this former famous Turkish television actor who finds himself running a hotel in the middle of nowhere that was bequeathed to him by his parents. And he's kind of caught in a tricky marriage, uh, and he's also living with his divorced sister. And it's uh, it's all very Chekhovian, but it's also you know it's all uh, you know as big as as the landscapes as uh, Jalen loves to capture. I don't know. I I really I'm totally in the I'm not in the bag for this filmmaker. Meaning everything he does is great, but I I think his style of the kind of epic intimate filmmaking where he's taking huge huge pieces of scenery but just re- never forgetting the people in the in the in the story. I don't know. I'm I'm really I'm really completely seduced by this guy's camera eye. So, yeah, Scott, no. you did talk about this in part one. It was your what number pick? It was my number 6. Your number 6. Okay, so just missed the cut for the top 5. And this is the movie I just caught up with the last sort of final top 10 cramming. And I did enjoy the movie, though, not as much as either of you and not nearly as much as Once Upon a Time in Anatolia, his previous film, which we were completely in the bag for. Yes. Josh, I think my second favorite film of that year. and Might have been the same. Yeah, for so me. we love that movie. And I do love what you said about it, though, Scott, in terms of it being tragic. Ultimately, it really isn't, as you put it, I think, not just the follies of a misanthrope. There is something tragic. And, and I think that really does carry you through the movie. At the same time, and I know some young buck like Peter Labuza will write in and correct me on this and tell me how wrong I am. But you know what? I thought of more than other Jaylon films was I thought of recent Romanian cinema quite a bit watching this film in the sense that it seems very much to be concerned with language and miscommunication and how people can interpret or misinterpret a lot of words. And there's and a lot of phrases. dealing with bureaucracy, And a too, lot of dealing yeah. with bureaucracy, that's a big part of it. And just this sense of this country and this region of the country, anyway, being in this transitionary period that, that some people just can't completely get on board with, this meshing of the old versus the new that you see in a lot of those Romanian films. So it definitely held interest for me, but it, it just, I told you, Michael, before we sat down here, it just didn't, it didn't have the mystery for me mm-hmm. that, uh, that Anatolia had. And also, in terms of the cinematography, as nice as it is, there weren't any of those real moments of just drop-dead gorgeous beauty that I saw in Anatolia. And and I saw both of them, actually, at home on my television. So, Well, I think I think the use of landscape is, is being done very differently here. In Anatolia, it was such a prominent fixture of that story and what was going on, especially the first part. And here, it's almost less landscape than architecture, maybe. The houses yeah. in this rocky region, which are essentially built out of the boulders around. And, and, you know, they come to symbolize for this main character. He just kind of 
locks himself into one of these boulders, his study, right? And and so I did find those exceptionally striking, but it's it's less of an expansive use of landscape than maybe a focused one and also one that employs architecture quite a bit. Yeah, Antilly also made great use of the nighttime shots and the headlights, and, and so it's a little maybe more showy in that way. Scott, your number three? Uh, my number three is the Grand Budapest Hotel. I, mean, I think we've gone over it quite a bit. And what well, the thing I admire about it is just like, what an incredible piece of machinery this thing is. It's just, it's a vast ensemble. You know, you've got this nesting doll plot where you're going going through all these different periods. It's just, I can't even get my head around how complicated this thing is. And it just all is as clean as a whistle. Like the whole thing, it's just like one of the, like a Swiss watch or something. You just like look at the insides of this thing. It's the opposite of inherent vice in a way. It's almost equally complicated, but they do all fit. But they all, supposed to. Exactly. Yeah. It all fits together. <laughs> and you just marvel at, you know, and, and the weird thing, you never really, it's never really a compliment to talk about a film as being mechanical, <laughs> but, but it kind of is. It kind of, in this case, is. I mean, the machinery of the, of the movie is so satisfying and so entertaining but then also like any other Wes Anderson film does have that undercurrent of melancholy to it as well um, so I think it's just a masterful piece of filmmaking you know full stop and I'm excited to see it again I haven't seen it in you know since what April or uh, March even yeah it was early yeah yeah I think if honestly if it had come out later in the year we'd be that would be the talk of the season Rather than, I mean, it's got tons of admiration. Given that, given that it is already, as I said, yeah. on a number of lists. So, yeah, yeah that could be. All right. And number three, I had the tale of Princess Kaguya. And, you know, the more manic computer animated movies that we get, and I'm not completely averse to those. So we'll, we'll see that in a little bit on my list here. Still, the more of these that we get, the more precious things like stop motion and things like hand-drawn animation, which this is, uh, they just become that more valuable to me. I was so grateful for this reason for the pencil sketch and watercolor aesthetic of Ernest and Celestine from earlier this year. And we also had the arts and crafts stop motion of the box trolls, which was really uh, delightful. Those are two of the animated highlights of the year for me. But I do think even better than both of those is the tale of the Princess Kaguya. Uh, this is the hand-drawn folk tale from director Isao Takahata and Studio Ghibli about a tiny girl who's found in a bamboo stalk and is raised pretty much against her wishes to become a princess. Adam and I, when I briefly talked about it and then he caught up with it a few shows later, we both highlighted that impressionistic dream sequence that's at the center of this film in which the screen is given over to these ferocious brushstrokes. That's certainly the highlight, but I think I could also get lost in the delicate woodland scenes that make up the earlier portion. And those are, they're detailed in a way, what they reminded me of were Katsuka Hawkeye's woodblock prints of Mount Fuji. I don't know if that was an inspiration, Mm. but um, it's just some really beautiful work. Now, it's tempting to praise something like this as a, a last gasp of hand-drawn animation and, and you know lament that we're never going to get this again. But I remember I did this in 2010 for The Illusionist, and it makes me wonder if maybe we do keep getting gems like this, The Illusionist, The Tale of the Princess Kaguya, and you know enough people see them, maybe not Hollywood animated film levels, but enough people see them that um, the art form is going to live on, just maybe at a lower level. Yeah, a, a wonderful film one i did consider but just couldn't quite make that top 10 cut josh my number three fortunately i've got a guest voicemailer who can do some of the heavy lifting here for me hey there adam and josh it's allison wilmore here from film spotting svu uh my favorite film of the year is jonathan glazer's creepy sexy poignant under the skin 
which has really stayed with me all year, like a song you can't get out of your head, uh, and just has all sorts of resonant points to make about the act of looking and about being the one looked at. And really, what else are movies about? My thanks to Allison. My number three film is Jonathan Glazer's Under the Skin, and that was really a perfect setup for what I wanted to say about the movie. Allison's comments, that notion of her being fascinated by the movie drawing our attention to the act of looking and being the one looked at and what else her movie's about. I wrote something very similar after I saw this on Letterboxd, which was, I think maybe the movie achieves the most fundamental objective of cinema, which is compelling the audience to see the world through different eyes. And that really is the experiment that I think Glazer pulls off and the way he pulls it off. And, you know, let's face it, lots of movies are about looking and lots of movies are about strangers and kind of a strange land that get you to reassess your environment. But the way he does it here, it's through Johansson's gaze, Scarlett Johansson, as she looks for victims on the prowl largely at night, but also in his use of non-professional actors and catching people unaware. And he talked about in an interview with me here on the show about having to cut out some scenes that really just kind of got too intimate with some people not really realizing they were being filmed and were interacting with an actor and then them having to eventually cut those out of the film and those improvisational scenes there's an intimacy and an immediacy that did kind of force almost this out-of-body experience and did give me that sense of awareness of really just focusing on what I was looking at on screen and the way I see the world and the way I see these characters. I love the way Glazer strips away a lot of the science fiction tropes that we expect from movies like this. Josh, you talked about it a little bit when this movie made your list in part one, really the way he subverts our expectations with kind of the lack of process and really just feeds us all we need to know to keep us moving forward. And you talk about landscapes with winter sleep, the way the Scottish Highlands are shot in this movie, it's it's really like another planet with the fog and the snow and the violent waves. One of the aspects I really love. And I thought about Sexy Beast, Glazer's breakout film. That's a movie where it's just full of talking, right? Talking is a weapon. It's a dagger every time someone utters a word in that movie. And here it's all about the silence, just that calm and kind of living in those those silent moments. And I do think as you agree, Josh, it says really provocative things about not only you know body image, but about how our culture views women and treats and objectifies women. And yes, on top of it, Scarlett Johansson is a marvel in the movie. Of course, if that doesn't convince you, remember that Ryan Johnson in part one said it was maybe the best film of the decade. So there, that's my, that's my parting shot <laughs> for Under the Skin, my number three film of 2014. All right, guys, Nicolas Cage remains in suspense. None of us has named Left Behind as one of the best films of 2014. See if it makes the cut when we come back. And just as in part one, last week, our music breaks feature some of the best scores of the year as selected by friend of the show, Sam Smith. Here's, appropriately, Mika Levy's work on my number three film of the year, Under the Skin. Stay with us. Spotting Streaming Video Unit is a bi-weekly podcast hosted by BuzzFeed's Allison Wilmore and Matt Singer of Screen Crush, focusing on the world of online movies. More information at filmspottingsvu.com or subscribe to the show on iTunes. Hey there, all of you over at the Film Spotting Mothership. This is Allison Wilmore from the Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit podcast. 
And Matt Singer and I look back at the year in movies in our latest episode for an annual process we call the Swoovie Awards. We'll be giving out these highly coveted prizes in our traditional categories like Best Streaming Discovery and the They Didn't Get It Award, along with one or two new surprises. To listen to the podcast, you can subscribe in iTunes or check us out at filmspottingsvu.com. This is Mallory Andrews, submissions editor for ClayoJournal.com, an online journal of film and feminism. My number one movie of 2014 is something I saw at the Locarno Film Festival, a French movie called Fidelio, Alice's Journey. It's about a 30-year-old woman who is a mechanic with the Merchant Marine, and on her latest assignment, she leaves behind her boyfriend to take a position on a ship called the Fidelio. And there she discovers that the captain is actually one of her former lovers and may have been the great love of her life. Um, but it's far from a conventional love story, and there's no cliché, like, who will she choose drama, but instead it's a thoughtful and very, very sexy look at monogamy and long-distance relationships. The performances are great, the direction is great, and I'm really excited for its wide release in 2015. Welcome back to Film Spotting. Adam, Josh, Michael Phillips from The Tribune, and Scott Tobias from The Dissolve. They are here helping us share our top five films of 2014. This is part two of a two-part show, and that was Mallory. And I'm hoping maybe she stumped you guys a little bit. I haven't shared Mallory's pick with you. You didn't hear that voicemail. And a big part of these shows, as longtime listeners know, is usually you, Michael, shaming me. Yeah. And usually Josh as well by rattling off five or six movies that are in your top ten that, you know, we barely even heard of, much less saw. And and many of those films weren't real films. <laughs> yeah, I know. You were <laughs> just making them yeah. up. I knew he was doing <laughs> you that. You get away with it. I'm hoping that Mallory, with her number one film of the year, can stump you guys. Oh. It is a movie she saw in Locarno, Fidelio, Alice's Journey. Wow. Did it's Mallory great. stump you? It's, it's great. <laughs> yeah. No, great I didn't actor. see it. I didn't see it. So, wide release in 2015. Well, there you so, go. We'll, All right, we'll, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk. We'll have to catch up yeah. with it then. Thank you, Mallory, for the pick. Quick reminder about our poll question this week. By the end of the show, you'll hear what the four of us have chosen for our number one film of the year. You can make your pick right now over at filmspotting.net. Our current poll question gives you several prominent options to choose from. Of course, you can choose other if our top five or six really didn't do it for you. And if you do vote other, and really, even if you don't, leave a comment and let us know about your pick for movie of the year. And also make sure to let us know where you're listening from. We do always enjoy knowing where our listeners are writing in from. We're in the home stretch. Two picks left. That's all we got. Let's go. Michael, I can't wait. What's your number two? It's the Grand Budapest Hotel, which we've discussed already, but uh, that's a film I saw a second time, and what few objections I had to the film the first time, uh, 50% of them essentially vanished, I'd say. I was a little a little thrown by the deliberate jokey anachronisms in a lot of the dialogue and some of the casting and you know, the fact that you have Harvey Keitel coming out of, you know, Brooklyn in one scene and you have Owen Wilson as, <laughs> you know, as, as Monsieur Chuck as, as one of the concierges in another. And yeah, all deliberate anachronisms, a lot of them funny. And I thought, well, it's not, they're amusing, but the, the whole rest of the film, the visual stylization of the design, oh, I thought it was also kind of transporting and, and marvelous. And really just, as you say, Scott, it's just kind of a great Swiss watch. You know, it's, it's an old comparison but true all all the then i see it again and i, I just the delight in seeing it unfold uh when i hear some people talk about birdman the people that really love it that's how i feel about grand budapest hotel it is it is not just visually kind of a whirlwind in a, in a one in a really controlled way it's 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 got it's got a really it's just got a uh kind of a, a flavorsome quality that 
gets at you know uh, all kinds of things, and it's at least as good as Rushmore. I think his other true masterpiece. Hmm. And um, you know what I'd say too is that you know he's, he credits this in the uh, at the end of the film. It's based on it was inspired anyway by the writings of the Viennese writer Stefan Zweig. Uh, a writer who was new to me at the time, but I read a couple things by him because of this. And in 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 the last thing he wrote, an unpublished piece, I, I should say a posthumously published piece called Chess Story, Zweig said this about a chess master. He says, anyone dedicating himself to a monomaniacal pursuit goes like this. The more one limits oneself, the closer one is to the infinite. These people, these chess masters... As unworldly as they seem, burrow like termites into their own particular material to construct in miniature a strange and utterly individual image of the world. Now that sounds like Wes Anderson, and that's the, this. This does. is to me. This was like a perfect match of material and uh, and auteur. And as a writer director, I think Wes Anderson was born to make period pictures. <laughs> and there's something. It's it's a little bit of Lubitsch. It's a little bit of everything. Billy Wilder. It's. It's, but it's, it is so utterly his own stuff. I, yeah. I love it. And Ray Fiennes is hilarious. He's great. It. He's hilarious. So, number two. Yeah, you actually reminded me of the anachronisms, just how much I enjoyed how profane this the film is. Just, I think the film just has these detonations of profanity in it that I recall really enjoying. Maybe I'm making that up. I'm making that up? No, 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 no. no, 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 no you know, know what right. it is? It's no. exactly part of the Fiennes character, too, because he has this civilized veneer, right? Yeah, yes. But, but, but yeah. you see, there, there's a point where that is going to crack. Yeah, there's Fair amount, there's a fair amount of high-minded trash talk in this yes, movie. Exactly. The cuss words yeah. land hard. Yeah, <laughs> they do. They do. They do. And I thought too hard the first time, but and you know, I don't. It's it's a choice. And and to me, there's there's 15 other things to enjoy in any <laughs> yeah, given scene. Sure so yeah, yeah. Yeah. Unfortunately, I can't mount a spirited, analytical defense of my position, which is not including this movie anywhere near my top 10 of the year. Wow. For me, right. for me, Scott, though, it really goes back to what you said about inherent vice, needing to see it another time and see if I can wade through all the plot. That was my problem with Grand Budapest Hotel. I, and I think that's significant because I was the same way. When when I will I forget who it was, someone I asked coming out of the actual screening. Now this guy was that guy, right? <laughs> you know, because it's that level of intricacy. So I yeah. think you do have to let that settle because it does unlike inherent vice, it does matter here. So it, mm. yeah, it's crucial. Mm. Scott? Your number two. My number two. This is all going to get very predictable. <laughs> my number two is Under the Skin, which, again, we've talked about. Though, though I'm not sure if my particular take on it has been talked about. But this is kind of a, you know, this is a story that if you were to really kind of talk about the theme, it almost sounds like a Lifetime movie or something in the sense that, you know, this is kind of about what it means to be human. <laughs> it's about a character who learns what it means to be human, you know, because, uh, you know, she, you don't know who she is or where she comes from. And she is affected and taken out of who she is in, 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 in very subtle and, and affecting and, and uh, ultimately, uh, you know, uh, tragic ways. But it's another film that's just so mysterious and so one of a kind and has such a, as I think Josh was talking about, the kind of integration of a lot of different elements that are very tightly put together. I think... He either had the intention of having his editor, effects person, and musical score being done all in the same room or all in the same studio, or it's or it was sort of like that. Mm -hmm. It was like all in the same block or something. There was this sense of he is of the movie as this kind of symphony that he was yeah, conducting, yeah. and it had all these different elements to it and a, and a lot of mystery. And it's another, it's a really good example too of a filmmaker who has just decided to kind of not necessarily go to war with the source material, but just say, I'm just going to take what I need. I'm going to throw everything else away, you know, because it really is about, you know, the reason why she's there is 
is an issue, is a matter in the book. It's important to the book. And he decides to lose it, you know. And I think he was also saying that his co-screenwriter didn't even read the book. So this is, uh, you know, this is somebody who has really thought through this material and found something in it that, that is meaningful to him and then creates art out of that. And then I just think it's a technical achievement, fascinating and enrapturing. And uh, it's just a real f- experience. Indeed. Under the skin on three of our four lists so far. So, so far. I don't even know if I'd heard of my, I'm pretty sure I didn't hear of my number two film of the year until probably about August when I was preparing for our fall movie preview and came across Memphis, this collaboration between director Tim Sutton and alt blues artist Willis Earl Beale. Beale stars as a successful singer-songwriter. He's in between records and in this creative malaise, he's wandering around Memphis in search of some sort of inspiration or motivation even. I gave a brief review of Memphis on show 515, so rather than repeat what I said there, I thought I'd quote another champion of the movie, The New Yorker's Richard Brody. He also has Memphis on his top 10 list. Beale drifts through a symphony of sights and sounds, Brody writes. Steamy sunlight, piercing vaulted foliage, dusty streets teeming with hidden life, the wind in the trees, train whistles, bird calls. Accompanied by a haunting score of elusive fragments and dreamlike twiddles that could be coming from Willis's studio or from his solitary yearnings. His heavy trudge on a game leg suggests weariness of historical dimensions. The harmonious mysteries of the urban landscape are themselves the essence of his art. A brilliant sequence of musicians at work gets away from familiar modes of film performance and into the depths of inner experience. That last part, how Memphis depicts the experience of music making that did really stand out to me as well. And I think, you know, we had a year of really strong movies about musical creativity. We've mentioned a few of them, Mistaken for Strangers, Frank, Whiplash, which is on a couple of lists here. Uh, For me, Memphis stands at the top of those. I know you were hopeful that I would have a similar experience with Memphis. I did catch up with it and and I didn't. I'm not unfortunately with you and and Mr. Brody, even though what you both have said about the movie seems dead on to me. It's a case, it reminds me a lot in terms of this search for kind of artistic meaning or however you want to put it. It seems very similar in some ways to a movie like Fellini's Eight and a Half. Okay. Obviously, except you have this character who's sort of in a in a moment of block, right? Mm-hmm. He can't he can't create. Except the difference here is you've got someone who who seems to have really no introspection whatsoever. He really is just floating through all these scenes, and that that wasn't you enough. You didn't connect to, with the performance, no, yeah. I really and, and I can I can completely understand that because there are moments in this film where you sense the it, it's Beale's first time as a as an on screen performer, from what I understand, and you can sense that here and there. Mostly, though, I think it works for what this film is doing. Mm. All right, my number two film of the year. I'm I'm actually a little bit surprised because I have a feeling where most of this is going with the number one, and I thought I'd get a little bit of support with this pick, and alas, it seems like I'm all alone. My number two film is the movie I had the most notes on when I jotted them down before a review. It's the movie that provoked triple the email responses we normally get for a review and probably generated triple the think pieces most movies get online and in print, for better or for worse, and that movie is David Fincher's Gone Girl. Hmm. It was also the movie, we talked about this, Josh, that left me under such a spell. When I walked out, I was basically questioning the reality of everything and everyone I saw. (laughs) As I walked out of that theater, I felt like Neo after taking the red pill. I simply (laughs) didn't trust that we all just weren't portraying ourselves as whoever we want to appear as. Even myself in conversation with my wife for a solid 24 hours after this movie. And, you know, in terms of subject matter, we all know at this point, I like to think we all know that truth is subjective and truth is illusory. And, you know, we're long past that point of 
anyone believing that we should believe everything we see and hear. But there's something about the way Fincher, the director, and Gillian Flynn, the screenwriter, adapting her, her novel, the way they pull you down the hole with the score, the shifting point of view, the flashbacks, the fades that, that really make you experience it and understand that. And, you know, all the talk of misogyny that surrounded this film, and we have gotten a lot of good feedback on that to our review, Josh. The bottom line for me is by far the most sympathy I felt for any character in the movie at any point was when the most diabolical, disturbed woman in the movie, and that's objectively speaking, I think anyone who sees it can agree with that, gets her blonde hair with the dark roots showing through too much, stroked and picked at by a man who claims to adore her and genuinely love her as he tells her how he's going to get her fixed up right. He's going to get her hair back just the way she likes it, get her back in shape, you know, the way she likes it and get the makeup the way she likes it. Of course, it's all it's all for him. She's a doll. She's a prize for his collection. And that that understanding really, I think, informs everything we see that unfolds in that film. And, I, you know, you talk about being a doll. I do shudder to think going back to my comments about under the skin, how often women do every day feel that kind of objectification, hopefully on a far less insidious basis than we see in Gone Girl, but I think feel it nevertheless. And just in terms of what the movie says about gender roles, roles we play in a marriage, the media, in terms of that satire, it's, it's one for the time capsule. So, your wife has no friends here. Is she kind of standoffish, Ivy League, rubs people the wrong way? She's from New York. She's complicated. She's got very high standards. Type A. Well, that can make you crazy if you're not like that. You seem pretty laid back. Type B. Speaking of which, Amy's blood type. God, I don't know. I have to look it up at the house. You don't know if she has friends. You don't know what she does all day, and you don't know your wife's blood type. Sure, y'all are married. You know, it's funny. I, I liked both Under the Skin and as different as they are, both Under the Skin and uh, the, this film adaptation of Gone Girl, uh, roughly equally. I thought they both were, you know, very successful. One, of course, is completely, you know, mainstream, populist, smart. Uh, I think storytelling Gone Girl, and Under the Skin is truly adventurous you know, much less linear and much less of an audience picture, you know, just frankly. And, but there's something about Gone Girl that as much as I liked it, does it have anything on a second viewing? Does it? I hope so. I hope so. I I would think so. It is, uh, you know. It's very crafty work. It is David Fincher and uh, it's kind of an interesting uh, mesh of sensibilities with him and with uh, the the author, Gillian Flynn, Mm -hmm. who wrote Mm -hmm. this, you know, I think a very interesting book, quite a page turner in its own right and one that, as Adam says, gets into gender roles. I mean, there's that that entire bit about the cool girl. I mean, that that whole my Halloween costume. Well, just just. <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just like that in itself. That takeaway from the book is just so potent. This idea, like that, women feel like they have to mm-hmm. be that person for somebody. Do you think Absolutely. it's potently effective? I should say in in the film itself, because I got a sense that idea. Well, well, the, that sequence, the cool girl sequence, because the idea of it, I, I could see why they were attracted to it, but mm-hmm. it to me, and I like the film overall as well, Michael, but maybe the reason, one of the reasons it's not on my list is that idea seemed in opposition to the overall um, maleness of this picture, which I think is just huh. part of Fincher's style. And I've sensed those sensibilities of the book and maybe Fincher's style 
butting heads a little bit, particularly in that sequence, but but really throughout. I don't see how it's different yeah, than something like Listen Up, Philip, when we were talking about Elizabeth Moss getting a section of the film to herself. Yeah. And we get that in Gone Girl, I think, for the same reason. Yeah, and I mean, in the film, it's folded into a larger look at sort of the roles we all have to play, you know, so, I, and I, which I don't think is It makes perfect thematic sense. You know, I mean, sure. I think if, when you watch the film, you know, the cool girl thing comes up and it's, I don't know if the emphasis on it is as heavy as it might seem in the book, but because uh, the film has a lot of things on it that has to get through. I mean, it's, a, it's another one like Grand Budapest, which has a very uh, complicated plot that it gets through uh, very, very smoothly. For uh, sure. Very satisfyingly. It's so much fun to see with an audience too. Did you did any of you see with this with a, like a full audience? Yeah, pretty good crowd. Very, very, a lot of fun, a lot of uh, a lot of laughs and whoops and hollers. And <laughs> I had a, I had a great time watching it. For there's, sure. no, there's, there's nothing. The kind of laughter that's sort of great in the movie in a movie theater is the squirmy laughter, where, yeah. where you know the characters are basically <laughs> under the microscope. Yeah, yeah, plenty of that. Well, so now we would continue our normal rotation typically here, but as we get to the number one film of 2014, I think I'm going to call a little bit of an audible because yeah. even though we have haven't really discussed our picks ahead of time. I know where this is going. And Josh, I think you're maybe going to be the lone dissenter oh, on what, in fact, boy, the whatever one will film I do. of the year is. So why don't you tell us your pick and then we'll get to this trio here. Well, I guess I'm a dissenter, but the film has already been mentioned. It was on Michael's list and it's the Lego movie. I, I right. had to put it up here. <laughs> I right. mean, it, this really, here are some of the other films that I've mentioned alongside this and maybe why it's at number one for me. I think of Chaplin's Modern Times, I think of Jacques Tati's Playtime, and uh, people might scoff at that. So here, here are my main reasons for that. All three movies have meaningful things to say about social engineering, right? What sort of society do we want to build and how are we going to build and enforce it? All three celebrate the way creativity will always trump oppressive conformity. At least we hope that it will. And these movies see that sort of vision. That's also part of the Lego movie's subversive spirit as well. And all three employ, this is what I really like about this as a time capsule film, Adam, the dominant visual aesthetic of their day. And in the case here, it's computer animation. And they do that to be side-splittingly funny. I mean, this is just the most laughs I had in a picture all year. Favorite <laughs> yeah, American absolutely. comedy, Michael? I'm yeah. all with you there. I also want to put the Lego movie in context of A.O. Scott's piece, The Death of Adulthood in American Culture. This ran in New York Times Magazine in September. I know there was a lot of chatter about it back and forth. A really interesting piece. He wrote, comic book movies, family-friendly animated adventures, tales of adolescent heroism, and comedies of arrested development do not only make up the commercial center of 21st century Hollywood, they are its artistic heart. Nobody knows how to be a grown-up anymore. That was kind of the line that was passed around. Now, Scott, to be fair, he's only partly lamenting this. This was very much an ambivalent essay. And one of the reasons he gave for that is he noted how child's play has always been a part of great American art. I think the one example he brings back is Huck Finn hmm. a couple of times in the essay. And so I think, you know, the Lego movie is certainly maybe not a piece of art at the level of something like those, like Huck Finn, but I think it's definitely in that tradition. Yeah, I mean, I, I love it. My, my my wife hated it, and uh, uh, you know, well, it's it, you know, it's assaultive, and it, those are the sorts of movies that and, it's yeah. manic, but but to a purpose. Yeah, and there's one. I mean, the one aspect of it that you do wish they had worked a little harder on it. It's the only is is when they introduce you know the the, the, the one, reveal the reveal. Well, no, the oh, no no not that bit, um, which I think loses a little bit of magic visually because it's a little conventionally filmed, but. Uh, what happens in the last 20 minutes. But 
uh, well, you know, just having having a having a promising female protagonist like Wild Style come out. Wild and, Style, yeah, I mean, that's what it says. Yeah, on your birth certificate. Well, Wild yeah, Style, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 then and then basically sidelining her as, as sort of a blandly supportive, you know, uh, you know, third. Oh, I think I think it gives her more to like, do than that with yeah. with the whole Batman <laughs> thread that comes thrown in. I mean, she's crucial to kind of kicking him out of the way and yeah. establishing herself. Well, and, yeah. t- talk to Heidi about it. I mean, yeah. <laughs> You know, it, we'll it, bring her on next year. She should be part of this roundtable for sure. Her. And you really have to appreciate how how the filmmakers were able to, to follow this Lego man for like twelve years. It just you know, <laughs> wow, it really adds an emotional depth. To that, the joke uh, of the show and a perfect segue, <laughs> Scott Tobias into the number one film of the year according to it looks like many people, but also the three critics remaining in the room after Josh's pick. And they I got think one maybe, of us didn't go for it. I mean, you, know, you know, you know, yeah, at least one of one of us didn't have it even in the top ten. And uh, we are talking about Richard Linklater's Boyhood. And I think maybe the way I want to preface the conversation, we also have a voicemail as well. We just got this email, Josh. I don't know if you saw it. I think just came in last night from longtime listener of the show and a guy. Let's be clear, he's not you know some philistine. He he knows his movies and has taught movie classes. He is the Reverend Robert Lewis in Damascus, Maryland. He says. Okay, I still don't get it. I watched Boyhood twice, thinking that I might have been watching it with an attitude problem when I saw it the first time. I disliked it so much that first time, it was all I could do to not walk out at about 90 minutes into it. But now that it's being nominated and winning awards, I'm once again wondering what I missed. Beyond the fact of filming the same cast several times over a 12-year period, what else is there? Is it because I have a son of the same age? Is it because as a youth pastor, I've seen families and children just like this more times than I care to count, and it kept me from seeing the art or the entertainment in the film? Is it because it ties up loose ends that didn't have a lot of stakes and left a lot hanging? Or is it because the whole film was riffing off of Arquette's line, that's Patricia Arquette, I thought there'd be more? Because if that was the case, it's not done well in my opinion. I found myself bored both times I watched this film, and I really wanted to like it because I like Link later, but it just didn't happen. Any insight? would be greatly appreciated. So that's the challenge we're going to throw to the group here, trying to come up with some insight for Robert Lewis. But first, someone with tremendous insight, your colleague, Scott, from The Dissolve and an occasional guest host here on Film Spotting, Tasha Robinson, has an answer for Robert. It's been a particularly great year for intensely personal projects like Damien Chazelle's Whiplash and Tom Moore's Song of the Sea and Ava DuVernay's Selma, all these movies that are very specific to the filmmakers' origins and lives. But in all of 2014, there wasn't a single movie simultaneously as personal and as universally evocative as Richard Linklater's Boyhood. Linklater shot this film over the course of 12 years, watching a boy named Eller Coltrane play a character who literally grows up on screen from ages 6 to 18. It's kind of a typical story for Linklater, a sprawling conversation piece that's as much about how we live in the moment as how we change or don't change over the course of our lives, and how our families and personalities shape the choices we make. It's an incredibly ambitious project, it's beautifully shot, it's deeply moving, and of all the films in 2014, it was the hardest one for me to see end. If Richard Linklater decides to bring manhood to theaters in 2026 with another decade plus of Coltrane's character, just let me know where to send my money because I'm buying my ticket right now. Great stuff there from Tasha, as usual. I love this idea of manhood potentially coming in 2026. Sign me up as well. The gauntlet has been thrown down, though, from Robert. Anyone want to step up after Tasha and... Explain, articulate your love for Boyhood. I don't know that his experience of the film is so far from my own. It's just hard to uh, account for it. I mean, I, I think my f- the first 
thing the film enforces for me is just how powerful time is <laughs> as a conceit. I mean, just I think Linklater understood when he started making this project that just the fact that we are wa- going to watch this kid, this actor, and all these characters grow up mm-hmm. in front of our eyes was so extraordinarily powerful and so moving. I mean, there there are times of the film where I was crying <laughs> um, just for, out of for no reason, like just because time had passed. You know, I think you mentioned the scene in Interstellar where he's listening to some mm-hmm. message from from. You know, I mean, it's just uh, it's all about time and how how affecting time is. But it is also you know, it's, it's there's so much to say about the era and about politics and about religion and about Texas and about raising a family and a lot of things that Tasha said. It's just impossibly rich. And I think to get back to the point I was making about time, I think Linklater knew that it was powerful, so powerful that he didn't have to overemphasize anything and that he could kind of take some kind of unconventional sort of back doors into certain situations. And I'm thinking of, you know, like when Mason, I think you expect in a movie like this, I don't know what you should expect since it really hasn't quite been done. You kind of expect certain benchmarks of childhood to be hit. Yeah. Um, and he doesn't do that. No. He, you know, like graduation day would seem like the biggest possible thing that the film would show him graduating and it would be this big tearful moment and what it actually shows is that these two guys kind of like casually walking in no big deal to this graduation party and yeah. that's it you know it's very low key yeah i just i don't know it's very hard for me to articulate all the things i like about it because it is it has so <laughs> there's just so much to unpack uh, but i think just as a basic emotional experience it's just unparalleled i mean there was no it's so overshadowed anything that i saw this year it's number one without anything being close to it it's a huge huge achievement well i think you tap into the uniqueness of the emotional experience scott in the way that it takes you by surprise you're you're right you're not hitting those beats where you're expecting to be moved instead this is an incremental achievement so every little seemingly innocuous building block that's been put up because we've been there across that expanse of time hits you with a wallop. It's not what's happening then. It's what happened little by little all before. Yeah. And yeah. Well, they recognize it's it's not about you don't know what those grand transformative experiences are when they're happening to you. Right. And the movie understands that it's all about the next steps. It's about the transitions. It's about those segues. And, you know, I thought about this movie a lot just in terms of at awards time, talking about best editing and stuff. There's nothing really flashy about this movie, but just the way it treats some of those cuts talking about time going from mason going upstairs and coming down the stairs a little bit later and it's a few years in the future whatever it is the way you don't don't even see it's my number one too and and they don't section out the the two years later stuff there's nothing on screen that says six months later no two years later there's nothing there's no voice the entire purpose yeah exactly and i think i think the key uh, you know it's a film that really does invite you to talk about very big things like time and and love and and family and all the rest of it and and and, and then somewhat more specific things like you know what's it like to move as often as this kid moves what's it like to have you know one alcoholic control freak of a temporary father figure after another what's it like all this it's all done with such a light touch and uh, the key scene a key scene early on for me is this first time these guys move um, uh, young Mason is uh, painting over the apartment. The apartment, yep. uh, just to, to put some white paint on the walls to get the thing ready for the move. And he's painting over the markings of of the heights of mm-hmm. he and his sister, which we all have in our houses if you have kids. And yeah. uh, you know, and and it's, and it's done. It, it's a five second shot, and and every other director on the planet would have made a moment out yep. of it, and it's gone, gone. And there's something. 
you know, you see it happening and you're having, it's not just sad or touching or even an occasion for tears. And, and I too, like, I think like you, you just, you're like really kind of wiped out and maybe crying at weird times in this. Well, movie, it, you know? it's, it's and, matter of fact, like about those things, like the markings on the door, but it's matter of fact about the things that matter, per- perhaps only in retrospect. Yeah. You know, you don't realize it at the time you do down the line, yeah. which, which this movie is around to capture. Yeah. yeah. Let me say two things on it. There's a scene early on where Ethan Hawke, who plays the divorced father, who's you know a sometime figure in these kids' lives, and then but increasingly, as it turns out, a steady one, you know, a loving father, and he's forcing this sort of every every other weekend he's got the kids. He's forcing a kind of intimacy and conversation, like tell me about your day at school, <laughs> yeah. and it's just a, it's, it's yeah. just a little too much, you know. Talk to me. Samantha, how was your week? Uh, I don't know, Dad, it was kind of tough. Billy and Ellen broke up, and Ellen's kind of mad at me because she saw me talking to Billy in the cafeteria. And you remember that sculpture I was working on? Well, it was a unicorn, and the horn broke off, so now it's a zebra, okay? But I still think I'm going to get an A, right? Mason, uh, how was your week? Well, Dad, you know, it was kind of tough. Joe, he's kind of a jerk. Actually, he stole some cigarettes from his mom, and he wanted me to smoke them. But I said no, because I knew what a hard time you had quitting smoking, Dad. How about that? Is that so hard? Dad, these questions are kind of hard to answer. What is so hard to answer about what sculpture are you making? It's abstract. Okay, okay, that's good. See, that's, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were even interested in abstract art. I'm not. They make us do it. But, Dad, I mean, why is it all on us, though? You know, what about you? How was your week? You know, who do you hang out with? Do you have a girlfriend? What have you been up to? I see your point. So we should just let it happen more naturally, right? That's what you're saying. Okay, that's what we'll do. Starting now. This film is Linklater's sort of gentle argument for letting a film on this subject happened more naturally. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. And 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 he, and he pulled it off. And it's just got the kind of flow and feeling you don't get from the movies usually. I mm-hmm. mean, the only my closest equivalent experience was uh, would be a couple of Thornton Wilder plays, Our Town and a shorter one called The Long Christmas Dinner, where you have 90 years of Christmas dinners in one family taking place in 30 minutes. That's kind of what's happening here. It's this cosmically large thing happening in a very kind of yeah. ordinary way. And then it's over and life comes and goes and yeah. people live and die and you know people, marriages last or they don't. And um, the, But there's a life in the middle of it and you're following it and you're just trying to navigate your way. It's, yeah, it's, it's really, all you need. Yeah, you it's know? really about the magic and the mundane. And I think as well in talking about some of those great things Linklater does and emphasizes the way characters who seem totally inconsequential and insignificant to the story maybe come back into play in the movie. And those scenes, whether you like them or not, the fact is the way they contrast with characters we come to have some kind of attachment to and the characters who are our main characters are really attached to, they just disappear. Mm-hmm. And that's the way life is. People who you you meet when you're 12 years old, you may run into them when you're 32, but the, the people who you had just this deep bond with at some point in your life over many years, at some point you go your separate ways, you don't talk to each other ever again. There are those little things like that that... Link later captures. And I just think, too, in terms of talking about, I was going on a little bit about some of the experiments with my list. Obviously, there's a big experiment here in terms of capturing this over 12 years, but just in terms of it being essentially cinematic. Mm. You know, you can only watch it unfold. You can only watch a character come of age before your eyes 
on film. All right, so number one yeah. for us three, Josh, what did this film lack for you? Yeah, that's a even good question you, because you it, like it. I, I did like it quite a bit. I didn't really rank 11 through 20, so I, I, I don't know where it would fall, but it'd be close to close to 10 for sure. Um, what you're looking Eller for, Michael, Coltrane, is he's a contrarian. That's what you're looking uh, uh, for. No, no. Okay, so bottom line is the transporting experience you're all describing while appreciating everything you've said about it, I just didn't have. Okay, and it, and it's just a matter of the other films maybe on the list giving me that. If I want to quibble, I don't know that Coltrane, as he grows older, is up to the ambition of the project. You know, that doesn't throw the thing off at all, but it's a place where it might have put it to me up into that higher level. And maybe it's also that it's not uh, as cinematic, and I say this acknowledging the dexterity that goes into the editing, um, and you can see Linklater's use of the camera progress sure. as this movie grows on. So I, I'm not saying this is a static picture, but for the movies that thrill me, it's maybe not quite as cinematic as what's going to make you know my heart go a flutter. Mm. Not that it has any major faults. Uh, it's you know it's just other films were a bigger experience for me this year. And there has to be a certain continuity, though I think built into it. I mean, in terms of being, you can't make under the skin as a, over 12 years. You know what I mean? You kind of have to simplify in terms of style and for that to work. I mean, and I think in that context, the film is actually quite hmm. uh, striking cinematically. And uh, I mean, how satisfying is the denouement of that movie? <laughs> like how, how so what, a, what a great feeling you have when that thing is over. But yeah, I just, I love it. Absolutely love it. Well, on that note, those are our top five films of 2014. And thus completes our two-part top 10 films of the year countdown. Do you guys want to share any honorable mentions, some of those movies outside the top 10? Because we will list all of these, the full 10 down to one picks over at filmspotting.net if you click on top fives. But what about some of those films that maybe just missed the cut that you feel a little bit guilty about? I mean, a couple, of, a couple of were very close. You know, the missing picture, as you mentioned, Scott, I mean, uh, you know, Ida, absolutely Selma, the Babadook, all, a lot of them. The one that I like to ding the Chicago International Film Festival on, though, is a film from uh, Ukraine called The Tribe about a boarding house for deaf and dumb uh, citizens, uh, and it's it's basically a crime story that takes place inside this really striking location, and it's a it's a film that I saw at Cannes and has won a lot of awards on the festival circuit, and uh, unfortunately, none of the programmers who saw it along the way in Cannes, uh, it was a little much for their sense of their delicate sensibilities because it's kind of rough material and a lot of it's very explicit. And they, they thought, nah, not from us. So they didn't show it, but it's a shame because I think uh, sometimes a film, you have to just sort of canvas the range of opinion and say, oh, you know, not for us personally, but this film seems to be striking a chord with a lot of people. And uh, I think it's a shame that Chicago audiences didn't get a look at it here. Yeah, the Weinsteins could have done that for the immigrant, couldn't they have? Uh, yeah, was exactly. No, and that is, you have to kind of, at some point, you have to hold accountable yeah. the people that people have, think? they're in the position to at least get it out there in some small way. So yeah. anyway, that's mine, the tribe. I have quite a few. I mean, uh, just to go through, I have a top 15 here. So my 11th through 15, Stranger by the Lake, which is uh, a pretty remarkable French film, very explicit, sort of a murder at a, at a on a gay beach. Quite good. That's all. That's, you can stream that if you'd like. Uh, Inherent Vice, we talked about. Selma, I wish we had a chance to talk more about, but I think uh, there'll be plenty of talk when it comes out. It's such a movie of the moment and a pretty, I, I think, remarkable piece of 
historical filmmaking and one that avoids a lot of the biopic traps. Um, Two Days, One Night, the Dardenne's picture uh, with Marion Cotillard. You know, they, it, it's it, you know, it's always a thing with them where it's like they made another great movie. You know, yawn because <laughs> they just it's all they do. They just make great movies. That's their thing. Uh, Whiplash is my mother, another fifteen. In terms of just also rans, uh, they came together, which I think is kind of underrated and really hilarious. Rich Hill documentary that was big at Sundance, quite uh, technically striking. Uh, the Guest, which is like an amazing kind of like prime era uh, John Carpenter movie mixed with uh, the Stepfather, mm-hmm. Gone Girl, uh, Citizen Four, which I think has a lot of cinematic qualities on, on t- as well as being you know a nice piece of history. The Babadook, uh, Mr. Turner, Love is Strange. So th- those are all my Love is Strange. Yeah. yeah, I throw in Life itself too. Actually, mm-hmm. you know, that's a good one too. Has it come up? Yeah, ten to twenty. Yeah. yeah, I'll throw a couple out here in my eleven to probably twenty-five that haven't been mentioned so far. Monica Mana is this real-time documentary, a series of single shots all set on a cable car that's going up and down this mountain in Nepal. Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, that, that was Fighting for the Top, yeah, a, yeah. a sequel yep. that uh, I think really surprised both of us, mm-hmm. Adam, and possibly being better than the original picture, which we both liked. Joe, the David Gordon Green picture, and Night Moves from Kelly Reichert, yeah. those uh, both films that were fighting for a spot here. Mood Indigo from Michelle Gondry, and um, Jason Bateman's Bad Words, uh, I think is one I mentioned on our Best of the Rest show that, uh, that really has some funny, subversive things going on in it. Well, I'm still as usual, fighting with myself here over the final rankings with the 11 through 20, but some that I will point out, two that have been mentioned and definitely deserve more acclaim, Only Lovers Left Alive and Force Majeure. I also am a fan of Snowpiercer, Bong Joon-ho, and two Golden Brick nominees, The One I Love and Mistaken for Strangers, and I am also a big fan of J.C. Chander's A Most Violent Year, starring Oscar Isaac. So that's that's in contention there in that 11 through 15 for me. Startup, Enemy, I like Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, and I like Ida very much as well, Made Your List, and Dana Stevens, number one. So again, those are our top five films of 2014. Please send us your picks or any other comments about the show to feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744. Or find us on Twitter at FilmSpotting and at Facebook.com slash FilmSpotting. Movies that open wide on Christmas Day. Into the Woods, the adaptation of the Stephen Sondheim musical Unbroken, starring startups Jack O'Connell, directed by Angelina Jolie. Also out, Big Eyes, the new film from Tim Burton. Josh, you're a big Tim Burton guy. You saw this. Yes, I did. And uh, I'm a little less of a Tim Burton guy. <laughs> Just a wow. little. Just a little. It's not, It's, yeah. The movie about 1950s painter Margaret Keene, it stars Amy Adams and Christoph Waltz. The Gambler, Mark Wahlberg's remake of the 1974 film, written by James Toback. And Mr. Turner, the film that, uh, where was that again on your It's a pip, top I tell you. It's a pip, like Force Majeure. <laughs> One of your top ten films of the year, Michael Phillips, the Michael Lee biopic about the painter, J.M.W. Turner, starring Timothy Spall. Next week, we have no idea what you're going to get. It's like the, the mystery flavor sucker. You'll just have to tune in and see what is under the wrapper. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. Also, special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. Chicago Public Media creates award-winning content about the issues that affect our community, our nation, and our world. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Of course, huge, huge thanks. To you guys, Michael Phillips, Scott Tobias, that was fun, as always. Your stamina, impressive, as always. <laughs> Even more so than some of your picks. I kid, <laughs> I kid, of course. Michael, Thank where you. can listeners find you and read more of your stuff? Uh, ChicagoTribune.com slash movies. And uh, thanks a lot. It was fun, guys. Uh, Scott? Uh, TheDissolve.com. Simple 
as that. We'll look forward to seeing you at this time next year and hopefully along the way. For a film spotty, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.